We'll be the book of First Thessalonians. So if you would open there to chapter four, we'll be reading that chapter. As I mentioned last week, this chapter is all about living a life pleasing to God, a life full of spiritual growth, a life that is marked by ever increasing obedience to God's revealed will, a life of sanctification. We saw in the second half of verse 3 that one of the greatest threats to that holy life we are called to is sexual immorality. Now, you might be tempted to think it's strange for the primary exhortation on practical Christian living given to the church in the first century would be about sexual immorality. But it makes a lot of sense. In their culture, self-control in that area was considered an unreasonable demand. Men in Greek and Roman culture were expected to seek their satisfaction wherever they wanted, not just with their spouse, their wife. So it isn't surprising that he has this exhortation here. And it's really not a surprise if you've read any of the mythology of the Greek and Roman gods. Um, They come to earth, they whore around, they make children, they go back to wherever it is they come from. Uh, Their gods were incredibly lecherous, to say the least, and the worship of them usually involved immorality. And that was the culture in which they were living. Social norms would have been pressed upon the church in their society. Do what everybody else does. This is what our society approves of. It's okay. It's not a problem. And so Paul has to call them and exhort them. Don't do it. Don't be like them. Don't be like the nations. Remember Peter's exhortation. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Think of that whole disgusting list we just read in Leviticus chapter 20. They live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. Rejecting society's norms... And following God's word is the kind of situation Paul had in mind when he says, indeed, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13. We should make special note here. Paul does not accept their culture. He does not make any allowance for practices or beliefs of their culture. There was not a shred of accommodation or compromise against God's word in Paul's mind. Their society was wrong, and they desperately needed to know that it was wrong and be warned against following the cultural norms of their day. The practices of the Christian church (coughs) must never be influenced by the ideas of contemporary society. 
The practices and beliefs of the Christian church must only be found in the holy, inerrant, I have one, thank you. The holy, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God. This is true of all of our life and all of our practices and all of our beliefs. So we will read chapter 4, but we'll be looking specifically at verses 3 through 8 today of 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the encouragement of eternity. We know, Lord, that if we had hope in you only in this life, we would be of all men most miserable, as Paul writes. But we have that hope of eternity to encourage us. And we have before us a difficult passage on a subject that most of us prefer never to speak of. But we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts to hear it, to think about it, to ponder it, to be able to encourage one another, to be able to encourage our children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can talk to me anytime by saying hi, Vixie. <laughs> one of the dangers of using your phone to play the music. Welcome to Vixie. You can talk to me anytime by Thank you for turning that off. Uh, 
One of the great advantages of going through whole books of the Bible is that you never know when you'll touch on a subject that people need to hear. Uh, if you preach just on the things you like, <laughs> they may not hear what they need. Uh, one of the disadvantages is you have to cover all of the difficult passages in the Bible and present them faithfully and clearly, even though they're uncomfortable. This subject of sexual immorality is something that makes most of us quite uncomfortable. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. But God says it is his will for our sanctification. So we need to take it to heart and take it to mind. It is the will of God not to be sexually immoral. We saw this in Leviticus chapter 20, where we were reading our Old Testament reading today. But we see it throughout the Bible. Verse 5 of our text says that the sexually immoral do not know God. Ephesians, in Ephesians, Paul says, Ephesians 5, that you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you've ever read the second half of Romans chapter 1, you know what he's talking about. That downward spiral. You sin, you reject God, you despise God, he judges you by hardening your heart, and you do more and more depraved and wicked things. The sexually immoral have no place in God's kingdom. It's a scary thing. But it's on many of the lists that you see in the New Testament of the things that alienate you from God. In the Old Testament, the thing that, things that God hates. In Leviticus, because they were God's nation and God walked among them, sinners were to be put to death. And that long list of all those immoral things was there. We'll be looking at some New Testament texts as we go together, go through this text together today. But I wanted to make you think for a minute, what is sexual immorality and how bad is it in our society? Well, did you know that according to surveys, around 60% of children by the time they graduate high school have committed sexual immorality? 60%. By the time they get to be in their 20s, early 20s, only 12% of women and 14% of men are virgin. Our society puts that much Emphasis on immorality. And promiscuity is very bad across our society. The vast majority of men and women have had more than one partner in their life, not their spouse. And some boast of having over a 100. In fact, there was a girl recently who said that was her goal for college, to have at least a 100 before she graduated. It's a very sad thing. But it's not just that kind of immorality. We all know the big word. You know what the word here in the Greek is? Pornia, where we get the word pornography. Survey said that 98% of men have viewed pornography. Now, one survey I read said 30% of women, but another challenged their methodology 
one of the things we learn in biblical family counseling and marriage counseling, especially pre-marriage counseling, is that men and women are wired differently. I'm an engineer, so I use that illustration. <laughs> uh, men are visually oriented. Women are more auditory oriented. And we, we explain to them that you, need, you don't need to think pleasing your spouse is what pleases you. It's going to be different. Well, women don't really like to go look at pornography. They like to read it. And in one survey I saw, they said probably 96% of women have read pornographic novels or love novels or romance novels, as they're sometimes called. Now, you might think, well, what's the harm in that? And as we talk about this morning, what is this immorality? What is God condemning? I think you'll see the harm. So we'll come back to that. I also saw that, and it surprised me, only 35% of Internet traffic is pornography. I thought it was higher. A study from 2006 found that 84% of the people between 18 and 49 had seen a pornographic movie. 86%. They say one in three visitors to adult websites is women. They're not immune to the sin. Women prefer chat rooms to talk about that stuff rather than going looking at pictures. But that gender divide is not real. It's just the way the different things that influence or attract. I say all of this because it is a problem in our society. It is a problem in our public schools. Teachers have been known to discriminate and to humiliate children who have decided not to become sexually active. And we need to worry about that, and we need to encourage them in these things. Sexual immorality, we need to understand, is completely incompatible with Christianity. You can't be both. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and he might be holy and without blemish. In the same ways, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, Ephesians 5, 25-33. We see in this God's purpose. First, does the husband and wife care for each other in their needs, but also that that relationship is a relationship that mirrors our relationship with Christ. That that purity of our relationship with Christ is like the purity that should be in our marriage relationship. What he means by that is, you know, if we are idolatrous, if we love the world, if we love sin, how can we 
be pure to God and love God. And so the parallel is important for us to keep in mind. But how are we going to define sexual immorality? That that mirroring of our marriage relationship with our relationship with Christ is important. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, you accept it. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily. Second Corinthians eleven two through four. You know, he's comparing betraying God and turning away from the true faith to being very similar to the betraying of your spouse and committing adultery. And that idea is brought about, brought up by James. He calls us an adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God, James 4.4. When we turn from God to the world, to its sins, to its pleasures, we are turning from God and it is equivalent to sexual immorality within the marriage relationship. That's how intimate our relationship with Christ is. And that link helps us really to understand what he's talking about with immorality. Paul said, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up in his power. But do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall they then take the members of Christ and make them members with a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall be one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with the Spirit, with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your bodies. First Corinthians six, thirteen through twenty. Remember verse eight of our text talks about how God is giving us his Holy Spirit, an ongoing operation. His Holy Spirit is being given to us more and more that we might be sanctified more and more and grow in grace and grow in our faith and grow in our practice and our life and obedience. And when we commit sexual immorality, we're sinning against the spirit that is in us. We're sinning against God. We've been joined by his Holy Spirit. We do not want to alienate his spirit. The author of Hebrews warns us, let, the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, immoral and the adulterous. Hebrews 13.4 all sexual immorality defiles the marriage bed. 
defiles marriage. And so we see that contrast. Anything that takes away from that relationship is sinful. And anything that separates us from God, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, desires that we have, we know that takes us away from God, and God equates that to being like committing adultery against him. So if we're trying to understand what he's talking about with immorality to us, it would be anything that takes away from that marriage relationship. Now, you might not think of it, but that would include people who aren't married. You know, it's natural state for man and woman to be married. That's kind of God's plan. Yes, some people, like the Apostle Paul, who may have been married and widowed, but there are some who are called to celibacy. Um, that's a calling of God, and it's rare. You can't do that without God's blessing. For the rest of us, he expects us to be married. And anything that takes away from that and dishonors that would be considered sexual immorality. Essentially, any satisfying of those needs and desires outside of marriage would be taking away from what you owe to your spouse, what you should be giving to your husband or your wife. And it corrupts that relationship, just as idolatry corrupts our relationship with God. And thus, Paul is very firm in stressing this matter that it separates you from God and you have no place in the kingdom of God if that is your life. Now, we've talked about that before, that it doesn't mean if you stumble once, you have to go to hell. It means the person whose life is like that, who is unrepentant, who isn't changing. We saw that in First John, that the one who's living in sin is the one being referred to. The one who stumbles and repents is forgiven. But it is not something to stumble lightly into. So any gratification of those desires involving anyone other than your spouse is sin. I remember reading this past week that one of the fears women have in their marriage relationship is that their husband is thinking about those things when he is with her. And so that also, that's another way you can understand what, what he's talking about here as being sin. And of course, even if you're not married, you could be married, you should be married, and you're denying your marriage partner, your prospective marriage partner in this case. And he says, Paul says, if you cannot exercise self-control, then you should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. They may be denied the help that would be theirs in getting married if you're not marrying because you are taking care of things another way. So as we try to define what we mean by sexual immorality, I think you should keep that in mind. Because of temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to the wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you for your lack of self-control. 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5. Marriage is a good thing and one of the possible solutions to overcoming sexual immorality, which is where he turns in verses 4-6. through six. Each one of us should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We can overcome these sins. We can overcome all sin through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, through our hope in those areas. And we must. One of the passages that condemns sexual immorality the most gives one of the greatest hopes in overcoming it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The hope comes in the next verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. None of those sins can own you and control you forever. If you have the Spirit of God within you, if God changes your heart, transforms you, As the Old Testament says, he takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, puts his spirit in you and causes you to be willing and able to obey him. Then indeed, you can be washed by the blood. The worst of sins can be overcome. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't address the word homosexuality in there. I think some people use homosexuality today as kind of a smokescreen to cover up their own immorality and sin. Remember Jesus' parable? Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes to all I get, But the tax collector stood afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 10 through 14. To the Jew, the tax collector was the most vile person in their nation. Tax collectors were collaborators. They worked cooperatively with the Gentile Roman occupiers, and they were despised. Today, though, I think many Christians replace tax collector with homosexual, and they say the same prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like those homosexuals. And thus, they focus on one sin. But note the list. Which of us can say we are not guilty of any of the sins on that list? Greedy, revilers, swindlers, thieves. 
angry people, hateful people, all of those are listed as equivalent to homosexuality. Yes, homosexuality is a serious sin, but so are all the others. We shouldn't be deceiving ourselves, thinking I'm not a homosexual, so I'm good. I'm not a thief, so I'm good. I'm not a murderer, so I'm good. Remember Jesus said, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with you in your heart. If you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. We're as guilty as anyone in those things. So we should not be deceived. But he's given us some tools to help us control ourselves, to control and overcome the sin. In fact, he promises us that no matter how we're tempted, he always makes a way out for us, that we're never overcome by our temptation. We need self-control, and we can have that in the spirit. If it's not enough, we should marry and be open in discussing our needs. Uh, when I marry people, I do premarital counseling. Most ministers will do that. And as you get to the end, just before you get married, not too early, we talk about that. Make sure that you understand that if your spouse falls into temptation, it can be your fault as well. And the sin may be equally yours. So we cover those things. Marriage is a very useful thing for people in that area. As we read in 1 Corinthians 7, we don't deprive our spouse so they'll be tempted. I remember years ago when I first started working, I, we had a department secretary. And since I was down there a lot copying things, or she was copying them for me, because we only had one photocopier back in the day, <laughs> uh, I got to know her. She would sit there reading romance novels all day. So we talked about her husband. Well, he had been laid off. The, the company I went with made aircraft engines, so you know they hired a lot. They made a lot of engines, and then it was a decade before they needed to make more, and they would lay people off for a few years in between these giant waves of cycles. So he was laid off. He was no longer the breadwinner she was, and she began to despise him. He wasn't the husband. She wasn't the man of the house. She made the money. And she turned not to other men, but to romance novels to satisfy her desire. And you can imagine how that ended. It didn't last. It's a very sad thing. We need to be careful to meet our spouse's needs and to be open and honest in talking about them. So our first tool to help us is marriage. The second one is also listed here, and that's the fear of God. God sees everything, God knows everything, and God is perfect in his holiness, and he says here that his, he will avenge. He's not only the judge, but the avenger of sins of this kind, because they're very close to his heart. And he wants us to treat him the way we want our spouse to treat us, with that pure, devoted love, uncorrupted, unstained by anything. 
We're not talking about here vengeance as in wicked human revenge, but a holy justice that comes from God. And it comes in consequences. And again, that second half of Romans 1, one of the consequences is hardening off our hearts. And we have alienated the spirit who has been given to us by committing sexual immorality, then without the spirit's restraints, we're going to sin in more areas. We're going to have more trouble controlling ourselves in our life. And so the fear of God and the fear of consequence is another one of those tools God has given us. He finishes the section, and I think this really goes all the way back up to verse 1, by saying that God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. God's purpose for our life. You ever have somebody say, I'm waiting for God to show me his purpose for my life? I can show you right there. God's purpose for our life is to be sanctified, to be holy, to be devoted to him entirely, purely, without stain, without blemish. He has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. The two are opposites. In the book of Proverbs, we read the the path and the spiritual walk, the word can mean. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. God's children should be ever growing in grace and knowledge and wisdom and holiness. Grows brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked, uh, it's actually the same word, translated path and way, the spiritual walk of the wicked, is like a deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. Now we've been called to holiness. It is the way we should live our life. If we say we are walking in light, but we are living in sin, we learn in 1 John, it's not right. It's not compatible. We do not walk in the light with God if we are walking in sin, because in sin is darkness and we are walking in darkness. So the light of the the path of the righteous should be like the light of dawn growing until we reach heaven. Whereas the walk of the wicked, the way of the wicked, is like deep darkness. You ever been out in the woods on a moonless night? You don't know what you're stumbling over. And that's the way of it. You read first Romans chapter 1, the second part of that. And what does it tell us? That they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They believe the lie. They make up their own truths, which our society does. And they turn from God and turn from the truth of God into their lies. That is not just part of the judgment, but that is the opposite of what God has called us to, to live in the truth. Now, we've mentioned the Holy Spirit already. He mentions that here, that it is God who gives the Holy Spirit to us. He is giving it to us continually for this growth, for this fight. You know, we must fight the good fight, run the race set before us, but we do it not only in our own strength, but we do it with the power of the Spirit of God within our life as he convicts us of our sin and reminds us of the scriptures and what it says and encourages us to be obedient to God and to love God. The Bible 
really demands that kind of a holy life. For God has called us to holiness, not to impurity. Note that it is God who demands it. It is God's word who demands it, that demands it. We have that Holy Spirit in us to sanctify us, but when we sin, we are sinning against that Spirit, and we are sinning against God. And notice what he says. Whoever disregards this, disregards man, not God. Or disregards not man, but disregards God. Uh, Paul had mentioned earlier how he was so happy and so excited that then when they received the word of God from Paul and his team, they received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. The Bible is God-breathed. It is not man-breathed. Peter says that the prophets who wrote the Bible wrote as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. Paul says it was breathed out by God, and it's useful. When we disregard what he says about holiness, when we disregard what he says about sin, when we say, oh, that's you know, provincial, that's from Paul's time, not for us, then we're disregarding the word, but who are we disregarding? Paul who wrote it? Now Paul is saying here, no, you're disregarding God. God's word should be central in our life. It should be our only rule of faith and practice. It should be the guide for us. What's right, what's wrong? When I look to my own heart, is that best? The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, the Bible says. And I know that even as a Christian, even as a pastor. I don't trust my heart. I trust the word because it doesn't fail me. It tells me everything that I need to know. It is all sufficient. It is always true. It is always without error. And what it says is what God wants us to hear from him. So in saying that these things are sin, he is calling on us to turn away from them and to follow him and to love him. Now think about how you would feel if your spouse, your husband, or your wife ran off with another man or another woman. Now that's how God feels when we turn aside from his word. He is offended greatly. He is hurt. When we disregard him, we face consequences. And we face the doubt in our life. Am I really saved? Am I really a believer? I am wandering away from God. I am preferring sin to what he has called me to. Hope is lost unless repentance is found. But when we repent, when we confess our sins, John tells us he is faithful, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Christ blood which was shed for the remission of the sins of his people. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us that we can overcome all sins, that you never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, but always make a way out for us. And as we come to this exhortation of Paul, to live a holy life is the primary purpose of man. 
primary thing that we need to work on as Christians. Pray that we would look at all areas of our life for our holiness and our obedience to you, and especially as we have read today in the area of sexual immorality. We know, Lord, it is a troubling thing to hear about and to speak about, but I think, Lord, as your word tells us, these things are right and wrong, that we should have the courage to talk to our spouse, our children, make sure that we are working these things out in a holy manner before you, that we might be righteous in your sight, that we might receive your praise and not your consequences. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.